And now hear these words from John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. And now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get just a little. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. And now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This indeed is a prophet who is to come into the world. And when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks that you bring what we offer and multiply it beyond our wildest imaginations. Be with us now as we come with open ears and open hearts to listen for your, for your word speaking to us. Bring the offering that I have prepared, my meager offering of loaves and fishes, and multiply it, that we would hear you speaking to us, O oh God. For you are our rock, you are our strength, you are our Redeemer. Amen. Well, like we've said um, all, already, today we are launching our fall stewardship campaign. And for the next five weeks, uh, we're going to be spending time in this John 6 text. Uh, this uh, miracle story of the loaves and the fishes will be our guiding text uh, for the whole campaign. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks diving in and looking at this text from different perspectives. We're going to look at the perspectives of all the different characters from the crowd to the boy to the boy's mother, the disciples, and finally the perspective of Jesus himself. And our hope is that as we dive deeply into this rich and wonderful text, 
that we may hear what God would be speaking to us uh, and learning lessons uh, about what our relationship to giving might be. Now, the term stewardship uh, might feel daunting to some of us. I, I don't know, but it's, it's one of those words that uh, we say in church, but we don't often use um, outside of it. And so it might feel a bit confusing. It might, it might feel a little intimidating. Uh, it might even feel like a loaded term. I don't know. Um, so we're going to be talking more about stewardship and what it means, but perhaps a good definition to get us going today. Um, my basic understanding of stewardship is that it is the process through which we take care of something that has been entrusted to us. To be a good steward means that you take care And consider how best to use that which has been given to you. It is, it's that spiritual practice of remembering that ultimately what we have does not belong to ourselves, but belongs to God. One of my favorite examples of our call to be stewards uh, is to think about the gift of creation. Uh, You go all the way back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and you see that God has created the whole world and has created you and me, and part of us being human and created in the image of God is that we are given dominion over creation. Now, that doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want and we can exploit and abuse the resources of creation, but actually what that means is that God has created us to be stewards of creation, has called us to take care of and tend to the abundant resources of the earth. Stewardship assumes that part of what we have whether it be gifts or talents or financial resources, ought to be given back to God. It's part of our discipleship process, the the process of being made into the image of Christ where we are transformed from being inward-facing people that ask questions like, how can this benefit me and my treasure? into outward-facing people, where we begin to ask questions like, how can what I have be given back for the benefit and support of others? When we turn from inward-facing people to outward-facing people, we begin to ask, where is God calling me to invest my resources in the growth of the kingdom of God? We begin to ask questions like, how can I make the most difference for Christ with what I have. This is part, this is a key part of the process of discipleship, and it's why we need to think about stewardship. But this process of stewardship, this process of going from inward-facing to outward-facing people, I think oftentimes is a difficult and long formative process because we we don't really live in a world that always encourages us to make that shift from inward-facing, egocentric people to outward-facing, other-centric 
people. We live in a world that invites us to consider how can what we do benefit us the most? How much profit am I going to gain from this transaction? How is this going to advantage me and my own? Encourages us to be most concerned with receiving and not really consider what it means to be turned outward and to give back. And so I want to begin today by talking about this text from the perspective of the crowd because the perspective of the crowd shows us what it looks like when a posture of receiving perhaps goes too far. Now I want you to take a moment and imagine this crowd of 5,000 people who are following Jesus. 5,000 people is a lot of people. If you've been to the Intrust Arena downtown, 5,000 people is about a third of that capacity. Or if you're more of a Wichita State fan, 5,000 people will fill about half of Coke Arena. 5,000 people is a lot of people, and we have to remember that when this text was written, the patriarchal, patriarchal culture did not include women and children, and so the 5,000 was talking only about men, and so some scholars say that the crowd could have been as large as 10, 15,000, maybe even more. Of course, it doesn't matter the exact number of the crowd. The point is that it was a large and organic gathering of people who had heard that there was this guy, Jesus, who was performing miracles and healing people, and so they sought to follow him. And not just follow him across the flat plains of Kansas, but the text says, follow him up a mountain. Now, I don't know if any of you who are listening have been to the Sea of Galilee. I, I have not. But I love to look at maps, and so I spent some time this week looking at a topographical map of the Sea of Galilee. And, and the, the place along the sea where this um, event likely happened is actually about 600 feet below sea level. And, and the hills that surround that area that aren't too far away from the shore rise up to about 1,000 feet. And so when you add, do some simple math, about 600 feet below sea level to the mountain that's about 1,000 feet above sea level, all of a sudden you see an image of a crowd of 5,000 or more men, women, and children hiking up a mountain 1,500 feet in elevation just for the chance to see Jesus just for the chance to talk to the one who heals, perhaps in order that they might receive healing as well. Now, when I imagine this crowd, my imagination sees a group of people acutely aware of their needs. And so they had heard that this guy has miracle powers. And so perhaps they're coming, perhaps they're coming with their sick and their infirm, perhaps they're, they're coming with a deep sense of need, hoping that if they could just get close enough to Jesus, if they could hike up the mountain, that their needs could also be met. 
Why were the people so desperate to follow Jesus up the mountain? The text says it's because they had seen that he was a miracle worker. And who can blame him? I mean, if, uh, if there was somebody in this season of a global pandemic who could offer healing with the simple touch of the hand or a word of blessing, I would certainly follow him. I would certainly hike up any mountain, no matter how high it is, in order to receive some of that healing for myself. And perhaps you would be right there with me, right next to the crowd who comes to Jesus in a posture of receiving ready to receive from Jesus what they hope for most, hoping for a miracle, an experience of healing, or maybe maybe just a second chance. And it makes me wonder, in what ways do we embody the posture of the crowd? In what ways do we follow Christ up the mountain and through the seasons of our lives with the expectation of receiving something specific in return? Something from God, something from the church. Uh, Perhaps we come to worship expecting to receive something specific. Perhaps we expect to receive something specific from our pastor or from our small group. And, And if we don't get what we expect or what we want, well, then we're disappointed. And we try to change things so that we can get what we expect. And if we can't get what we expect or what we want or what we need... Well, then perhaps there's another church that will give us what we need. And I think even if we're not fully aware of it, many of us come to church, and and I'm included in this group, because we sense that our relationship to God meets within us a deep need. Perhaps for you, you sense that the church meets your deep and longing need for community. And that's a good thing. Perhaps for you, worship does meet your need to have inspiration on a weekly basis. Perhaps for you, you feel uh, that you need some kind of psychological healing and the doctrines of the church that remind you of God's never-ending love for you. No matter what the world says, you are always a beloved child of God. Maybe that satisfies a really deep and real need. Perhaps your relationship with the church meets your physical needs and you have benefited from various food programs or other means of financial support. Maybe you just come and you need and expect spiritual support and have found the church and your relationship with God to be the thing that gets you through when the most difficult seasons of life come and you feel like you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. See, in so many ways, I think we come and we embody the posture of the crowd. We come in a posture of receiving, hoping that God would meet us where we are and satisfy our needs. And I think this is a good thing. I don't, I don't think there is anything wrong, actually, with coming to the church in a posture of receiving. For, in fact, we come and receive so much from God. 
All of these things that I've mentioned, we do come and receive a word of forgiveness, a word of inspiration, the gift of community. Above all, we come to church and we receive that which we ultimately need most. We receive the gift of grace. There's nothing wrong with coming to God in a posture of receiving, for we should always have hearts open to receive the good gifts that God gives us. And yet, I think there is a danger that the crowd shows us because the crowd comes to Jesus up the mountain with a posture of receiving. And we see that Jesus is one who meets our needs. He multiplies the bread. He multiplies the fish that all may eat and have their fill. He meets the needs of the people, but the people are not transformed. We see at the end of the text, after the miracle is over, that the people respond. They respond with gratitude, and they they call Jesus a prophet, and they wish to make him their king. And, And this, at first, seems like a good response. It seems like they're responding positively with gratitude for what's been done. But then we see that Jesus goes away by himself. He goes farther up the mountain and and away from the crowd for I think Jesus knows that although their hearts are glad for having been filled, they misunderstand who Jesus is. For Jesus is not just a prophet, he's the son of God. And the kingdom that he is bringing in is not one that is marked and defined by temporal powers and earthly rulers. And so the people miss the fullness of who Jesus is. I think in part, at least because their posture of receiving doesn't evolve into a posture of giving. They don't necessarily make the shift, I think, from being simply inward-facing, coming to receive to then becoming outward-facing. And in a similar way, I think if we only look to our relationship with God as an avenue to receive what we need or want or expect, we may miss that most transformative part of our discipleship, the part that transforms our hearts from receivers into givers. You know, one of the reasons why I love celebrating communion so much is because in this holy meal that we share together once a month, we see most clearly the dynamic, the, the interplay between receiving and giving. For in communion, it is a place where without any ambiguity, we come to the table as receivers to receive from God that which we can never take for ourselves, the gift of grace of Jesus Christ. And yet it's also the place where we are sent forth from. We are sent forth from the table of grace in order to give of ourselves for others. 
And each time we celebrate communion as part of our liturgy, we, we say this prayer after receiving. We say the exact same one every time when we call it the prayer after receiving. And if, and if you know these words, I invite you to say them with me as I uh, uh, say them. And, and listen for the language of both receiving and giving in this prayer. It goes like this. Eternal God, we give you thanks for this holy mystery in which you have given yourself to us. Grant that we may go into the world in the strength of your spirit to give ourselves for others. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. See, when we come to the communion table, when we come to God, we come and receive that which we need. And we remember that like Jesus satisfying the needs for the 5,000, God satisfies our deepest needs. But we don't just come and receive, but we come and receive that we could then be sent forth to give of ourselves, to be good stewards of what we've been given. See, friends, church is not at the end of the day. It's not a place to just come and receive a worship service that fits your preferences and then go home because you had your needs met. It's not a place to just come and receive what we hope is an inspiring message and then go home because you got what you needed for that day. It's not just a place to come and receive the gift of community and then go home and live in isolation. It's not a place to just come and receive that word of forgiveness and then go home because you got what you needed. That's not the gospel. That's American consumerism. The gospel is a place to come and receive what you need and then to go forth and discern how to give of yourselves for others. I'm not just talking about giving your financial gifts. I'm talking about thinking about a complete paradigm shift in how we consider our relationship to God and to the church. About moving from a pure posture of receiving to a posture that receives, and then out of what you have received, you go and give. For when we move from receiving to giving, that's when the miracles happen. When, when folks move from receiving to giving, that's when ministry continues to be funded, even in the midst of a global pandemic. When, when folks move from receiving to giving, we're able to upgrade to a fully uh, serviced um, live streaming uh, service, which costs a lot of money so that we can continue the work of ministry. When, when people move from receiving to giving, folks are fed. People hear the gospel for perhaps the first time. When people move from receiving to giving, you have what we've seen in the parking lot service where over two dozen volunteers have, have offered their gifts of music, 
which in my mind is a miracle in and of itself to have 24 people say yes to this crazy new creative service. And it happens when people move from receiving to giving. Friends, if we only receive but do not explore how to give, we may miss the fullness of what Christ has for us. We might miss an important part of our discipleship. For although Christ does meet our various needs, social, psychological, physical, spiritual, Christ ultimately came to give us what we need the most, salvation, in order that we could be transformed from inward-facing to outward-facing, from just receivers to also givers. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.